This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with the late Dr. Sherwin Newland. He was an author and clinical professor of surgery at Yale University. I spoke with him at the Chautauqua Institution in New York on August 25th, 2005. Download the MP3 of our produced show at onbeing.org. Um, Mitch will need to get levels and then... Okay. I'm all right. I know what Tori is doing now. Mm. Is she happy? She just started. Yeah. She just started uh, beginning of August. And do they have children? Two. Yeah, they've got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. They were here, you know. They were here uh, first week of July, I think. Mm. Oh, in Chautauqua? Yeah. I saw that Robert Kagan was speaking. The one whole day. family was here okay. for the week. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. yeah. And I mean, I've thought of her so much. I, I would really like to be back in touch. Now, what did you create a major of at Brown? Since everybody creates their majors, I majored in history. Uh huh. Just because I found the professors of history to be well, that's the way to do it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. but I think. Um, it's kind of a joke because I don't. I'm terrible with dates and facts. I mean, it was more about ideas, and I think it, I learned to think and to ask good questions, which served me you well. You want to know a little secret? Believe it or not, dates are really important because they give everything structure. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I, I always hated the thought of dates, and when I got serious about medical history, I realized that everything hung on dates mm-hmm. and relationships of ideas to one another had dates around them? I just don't have a good memory for dates. I have a memory for relationships, mm. but not for the numbers. Yeah, yeah. I find that when we do, as we've been doing these programs, I mean, history is tremendously important. And when we're shedding light on any subject, we often end up going back in time and talking about precedents and where we came from. Okay. Um, I, okay, that's I, it. Okay, that's Mom, okay. <laughs> it's over. Let's get to work here. I would like to ask you, um, <clears throat> and this is a way I often begin my interviews, whatever the subject is, to say a little bit about the religious background of your early life that you grew up with. Are we on? Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're on. We're on. Well, I was born into an Orthodox Jewish family that were immigrants. Everybody had come from Eastern Europe, specifically my mother's side from the Russian Pale and my father's side from what is now called Moldova, which at that time was Bessarabia. It's on the mm-hmm. Romanian border. Mm-hmm. And they came here and steerage like everybody else and had no money like everybody else. The difference between them and everybody else, seems, was that everybody else went to night school and learned to read and write English. And for some odd reason, no one in my family ever did. So we remained in many ways unassimilated. So the mm-hmm. religious background remained Orthodox Jewish, but it was sort of a, how can I put it? Well, this is what we are. So, you know, we go to synagogue on certain occasions and we uh, have Passover Seder, and we do all these things, but no one's really very educated in all this. We only know this is what we do. But as far as a scholarly approach or a learned approach, there wasn't any such thing. So the kids are brought up this way, and everybody goes to Hebrew school, and everybody has a bar mitzvah, and this is, again, Mm -hmm. bingo. There's no question about what the family tradition is and what the family will always be. And I... uh, actually took all of this very, very seriously. 
I took it more seriously than anybody else in the family, and uh, thoughts of uh, God were very important to me, and God's will and my behavior uh, in respect to that became and remained very important to me. And as I got older, they didn't. That didn't lessen. That hold didn't lessen. If anything, it got stronger. And that is the story of my early religious background. But that's as much as you've asked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I don't. Um, do you want to tell me more, or should we? Only if you need let's, for me to tell you. I'm, I'm happy okay. to tell you more, but I'm just answering the question. Yeah. You've been asked. Let, let's talk. Let's continue to talk about that as it's relevant to sure. some of the things you've been thinking about in more recent years. Sure. Um, you spent 30 years as a surgeon, and I don't know, I read somewhere that over three decades you cared for more than 10,000 patients. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and you wrote this book um, call, called The Wisdom of the Body, and um, you wrote, not alone the structure of, us, structure of us, but also the infinite variety of processes by which we maintain that singular constancy and unity of moment-to-moment life has inspired me to write this book, I want everyone to know what I have come to know. I just, I would love to hear about how that longing grew in you to (laughs) share what you know. Well, the best way to learn about normal structures and normal function, I think, is to study disordered structures and disordered function. Mm. So when you've spent... 30 years in clinical practice, but it was six years of training before that and four years of medical school before that. When one has spent that amount of time studying abnormalities, one develops an enormously healthy respect for normal. One develops an enormously healthy respect for the equilibrium that is maintained in order for us to continue in healthy life. And the respect is not so much for the equilibrium as it is for the way the body just knows that it needs equilibrium and is chemically, physico-chemically organized in such a way that anything that knocks the equilibrium off is immediately corrected by something. And in order for that to happen, there must be communication between the various parts of the body and there must be some central control over this communication. It's like a community. Think of your 75 trillion cells as a community of 75 trillion people. Mm -hmm. Somebody's got to run it. Otherwise, it would be chaotic and disorganized. And, of course, the person who runs it is your brain. And your brain has a number of levels which it shares, some of which it shares with lower animals. It has the brain stem, which it shares with so many vertebrates and even lower animals than vertebrates. And then it has a something called a limbic system, which interprets a lot and understands emotion somewhat. And then it has this extraordinary thing on top, which we call the cortex. And our cortex is different from the cortex of every other animal for a lot of reasons. But this is a long-winded way of saying that what really counts is the organization, hmm. the organization and the leadership and the fact that the body truly responds to the leadership. But the leadership has to respond to the body because the leadership has to be in a position that every small group, every lobby in this body has a place in the 
thoughts of the leadership, literally the thoughts, so that if your finger, your fifth finger happens to hit a pin, a whole bunch of things are set off immediately because the leadership is paying attention to every one of those 75 trillion cells. It's an extraordinary integration. Mm-hmm. And it's all integrated under the nervous system. And in the talk I gave on Monday, I referred to the integrative action of the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Did you hear that talk? I did. Or? I did. I did. What, what brought you, though, um, you were 61 when you began to write, right, to, to put... No, that, no, 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 no. I was younger than that. I wrote a book in, that was published in 1988, so I was probably about 56 okay. when I began writing. All right. Yeah. I mean, what brought you to want to write about all of this for, another kind, for, for other people who were not physicians, who didn't know? Well, it wasn't my plan. What actually happened, and, and you've, uh, you're about to get much more than you want, no, what actually okay. happened was that the phone rang one day, and a man on the other end said that he was a uh, literary agent, and there was a book that he thought needed to be written, and he'd been looking around for somebody to write it, and several editors in New York had mentioned my name because I'd written some stuff. And mm-hmm. The book, he said, was to be called How We Die. Oh, people, so he presented people, that he idea. He presented mm-hmm. the idea, presented the title. He said, you know, do you realize nobody really knows what happens to us when we die? And I said, that's silly. It must be in medical textbooks. Well, to shorten this story as much as I can, no, it wasn't in any textbook. And here are families and here are dying people living through this terra incognita, and I could even spell terra, T-E-R-R-O-R, because it is indeed a terrifying terra, Uh, not knowing what to expect the next day and thinking everything is out of control as the body deteriorates, as the mind deteriorates. And wouldn't it be wonderful if people really understood what to expect and knew that as bad as things were, this is the way you die of cancer or of heart disease or stroke. This is, if we can use that word in this sense, it's normal. And I thought that would be very reassuring to people because my experience in medicine had been that if I told a surgical patient just what to expect, he could tolerate pain much better. Mm. He could tolerate, oh, drainage and discomforts and diarrhea because he knew that was what was supposed to happen and it was okay. So why shouldn't that be true of the months and weeks before death? And that seemed that seemed like a noble cause when he suggested that I write such a book. So I agreed to do it. And... Both he and I were surprised at the book. That was How We Die. That was written. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was How We Die. Uh, he and I didn't speak again for another year while I wrote the book. And I had no plan except what I've just described to you. I just chose the diseases that are most prevalent that cause death in our society, in Western society, and wrote about them. And to my amazement, when it was all over, there was a beginning and there was a middle, there was an end, and there were expressed in the text philosophies of death and dying and treatment of the dying that I had obviously been following all my career and never consciously stopped Mm. to think about it, but there they were Mm -hmm. in print. So I developed a healthy regard for what goes on in the unconscious mind, and everything I've written since then has been done exactly the same way. Oh, so really, yes, I mean, it's interesting that you wrote first about death and later, this later book, The Wisdom of the Body, more about 
about how we live, about how, about as you say, sure. the organizational principles. But you're, but you're saying even really it was the act of writing that first book as much as what you know that that led to that next step. Yeah. Remember mm-hmm. I said a moment ago that the thing that makes you want to seek out the normal is, is constant contact mm-hmm. with the abnormal. Mm-hmm. You really want to know what has gone wrong and why it goes wrong and what state it goes wrong from. Because you begin to wonder, why don't more things go wrong? Especially when you're in surgery and you look inside an abdomen and realize how many things could go haywire and they don't. Mm -hmm. Or you look at the structures that you're dealing with and recognize that everything's just humming along beautifully. Nobody is running it. It's just going by itself and the orders are coming from somewhere. This little bit of pathology that you're taking care of is in the corner somewhere. Now we know it affects the whole body, but when you look at it, you're most impressed with the normal structures. And sitting right in the middle of it is a really ugly thing, whether it's a cancer or disease, gallbladder or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And yet everything else is going along fine. Mm-hmm. All you've got to do is get that bad thing out of there and the body goes back to being perfectly healthy. You also had a serious experience of depression, which yeah. you wrote about in a more recent book, um, Lost in America. That was yeah. that book, correct? And I'd also be curious about how that experience formed your interest, your fascination with your physical self, with the body. How did that... (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the next step in the story of my religious experience because when I became depressed and became a victim of obsessional thoughts as people do when they're depressed. You you keep mulling over things and ruminating over things. I've been there, by the way, so I know what you're talking about. I'm sorry to hear you remember the club, but uh, it's a much bigger club than most of us Mm -hmm. ever dreamed about, Mm -hmm. extraordinarily bigger. Uh, I came very quickly to admit something to myself that I had really been aware of on some level, but refused to come out and say directly, which was that my religious beliefs, what I thought were my religious beliefs, were nothing more than obsessional thinking, that that it really had to do with fear of whether you want to call it hellfire or punishment mm-hmm. of some kind. And these would be the beliefs that of your of this Orthodox Jewish upbringing? I don't know. Mm-hmm. How does one know? Certainly, I, since that time, have met many, many, many Jews, just as I've met many Catholics and Protestants who have deep faith, who really believe, and, and obsessional thinking has nothing to do with it, and right. fear of punishment has nothing to do with it. This is true faith. But... My problem was me and, mm-hmm. and not what Judaism represents. And it was clear to me that the behaviors that I was exhibiting that I thought were in keeping with Jewish religious precepts had to do with superstitious fears of punishment. Okay. And the, they were indeed a symptom of a long-term obsessional neurosis. And if I was going to get out of this depression... I was going to have to give that all up. Hmm. And and I did. Interestingly, you know, people think, well, you know, we'll take pills, we'll take electric shock therapy, we'll get psychotherapy, and we will gradually get better. And they forget that you reach a point in an emotional illness on the upswing when you're starting to get better where you have to make a decision. 
because you're now strong enough to make it. The decision is, am I going to hang on to these symptoms? Because the symptoms become very meaningful to you. You depend on them. You're comfortable with them. They represent What are you thinking of you. when you think of a symptom that you had, for example? Well, some of my obsessional thoughts. Mm-hmm. And they were obsessional thoughts about all manner of things. And I realized that and therapist helps you with this kind of stuff, but you, you doesn't have to help very much because it's pretty clear if you're thinking about it. Uh, they represented a sort of comfortable, familiar thing that I could come back to. They almost, almost as if they represented family, and it's hard to give those things up. Mm. It's very difficult. There's an old suit, and it looks terrible on you, but you like it. Mm-hmm. You know it's really good, and the elbows are patched, and you feel like sitting by a fire and smoking your pipe in that suit. But you know if you do that, you're never going to get out in the world and live. And it's very much – I like that analogy, as a matter of fact. It's very much like that with neurotic symptoms. If you're going to get out in the world and really accomplish something and really understand the way the world functions, you've got to get rid of all that stuff. And I just did it. I did it by an act of will. But, of course, I couldn't have carried out that act of will if I hadn't reached a point in my recovery, which in me – really meant electroshock there because right, I was right. far gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but so then the question is, I mean, since that time, and as you said a moment ago, having written the first book, you've gone on to think a great deal and write a, a great deal about human consciousness, about the human spirit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I know I'm curious, I mean, is there a connection between what you, what you gave up in, in terms of these obsessional thoughts, the religious um, ideas that that didn't weren't good for you, um, and then what you began to think about in their place, because you didn't really stop thinking about what it means to be human, or or that the fact that there is a human spirit, which are often connected well, with religious right. beliefs. That's right. It's the human spirit that got me through. It was the sense that there is a richness in this world. That's enormous fun if you can find it. Hmm. And it's the kind of fun that you can have while actually making the world a better place for other people too. There's an integrity to it in the sense of a oneness, of a unity, that if you are discovering the essence of what it means to be human, you are freeing yourself from all these enmeshings and thinking about yourself. So you're really thinking about humanity and the human spirit and accordingly other people. And the sense of accomplishment when you accomplish something from that intellectual and emotional background is enormous because of the freedom. I was shackled by neurotic thoughts, by essentially being so twisted in the meaning of what I was doing, the meaning for myself, the spiritual meaning from some supernatural being that Mm -hmm. I didn't really understand. Once that was gone, what a wave of freedom, what a liberating thing it was. It was as though I'd been bottled up and someone took the cork off the bottle and this thing, it didn't leap out. It sort of came Mm. out. 
And luckily for me, it's continued to come out. Because when one gets tempted to take up the obsessions or the neurotic symptoms again, one begins to think of not just the cost of doing that, but what you would lose, Mm -hmm. the pleasure that you would lose, the rewards you would lose, the sense of self you would lose, the feeling of being a part of an open community that you would lose. I, I know this is a lot of abstraction. No, I don't think it's abstraction. And I think a lot of people will um, will know what you're talking about and will recognize themselves there. I mean, but again, you know, what I think is fascinating is that you continue to talk, you thought about the human spirit in a whole new way, but in your spirit, it sounds like. And you did so also by connecting that with... Um, with the the work of your life, with mm-hmm. your your work with the human body, and uh, I think you have a very interesting thesis, and I don't want to misstate it. That uh, well, let's see. I mean, here I mean here's some language from um, from your book. the The human spirit is the result of the adaptive biological mechanisms that protect our species, sustain us, and serve to perpetuate the existence of humanity. You know, that could sound like a kind of an antiseptic and reductionist statement, but in fact... sound like a meaningless statement. <laughs> well, no, but uh, you make it and you surround it with ideas, with a sense of great wonder at... Well, you just got the word. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here on the edge of my seat hoping, when am I going to get to say this word, wonder? Mm-hmm. Wonder is something I share with people of deep faith. They wonder at the universe that God has created. And I wonder at the universe that nature has created. But this is a sense of awe that motivates the faithful, motivates me. And when I say motivates, it provides an energy for seeking. Hmm. Just as the faithful will always say, we are seeking. I am seeking. We're seeking different things. I'm seeking an understanding of this integrity of everything, of this unity of everything, of the equilibrium, of not just the homeostasis, as the physiologists say, the staying, the sameness, but of the closeness that we are constantly coming to chaos. I have had chaos. I've had chaos to the point where I thought my mind was lost, which gives me a deeper appreciation of equanimity, equanimity in the sense of equilibrium, in the sense of the homeostasis, in the sense of this being the key, not just to continued existence, but to continued learning, continued productivity, this kind of thing. And let's, I mean, let's back up a little bit and, and expand on that for somebody who's hearing these ideas for the first time. I mean, sure. you really do suggest that, that the human spirit is something of an evolutionary accomplishment. Yes, mm-hmm. an evolutionary accomplishment. Easier for you to That's say. An evolutionary. Well, it's easy for us to edit, okay. too. <laughs> an, ev- an evolutionary accomplishment of the human cortex, the cortex of the brain, and the way it relates to the lower centers of the brain and the way it relates to the entire body, the way it accepts and synthesizes information, uses information from 
the environment from the deepest recesses of the body to maintain the equilibrium, the way it recognizes dangers to its continued integrity and sits in a state of constant readiness, a kind of instability, ready to attack Mm -hmm. and to overcome. And I think that this is precisely what the human spirit is doing. The human spirit is maintaining an equilibrium and it largely is related to its normal physical and chemical functioning. That's what I think. I think there is a direct correlation between the equilibrium of our thoughts, of our spirit, of our mind, and the equilibrium that we need to maintain our bodies in health. So um, so that there, there's a biological underpinning for intelligence that evolved over a great large span of time in human beings, but then that we developed something else, which is yes. consciousness. Is consciousness the same as spirit? I don't think so. Consciousness, Gerald Edelman said the other day that consciousness is what you have between periods of sleep. Uh, Consciousness is only a kind of an awareness of our surroundings and an awareness of our emotions and Mm -hmm. awareness of our responses. The human spirit is something much greater. The human spirit is an enrichment. It's a way we use our consciousness to, I keep using this word, to synthesize something better than our mere consciousness, to make Mm. ourselves emotionally richer than we in fact are. So almost to transcend what was given. And and this is what I mean when I say that we are greater than the sum of our parts, Mm -hmm. that because of the kinds of trillions of cerebral connections we have and the way our species for the past 40,000 years since modern Homo sapiens appeared on Earth, the way we have adapted to stimuli from the outside, we have relentlessly pursued this upward course, I believe, toward creating the richness of the human spirit. There is a word that the neuroscientists use when talking about why a certain series of circuits, a group of circuits in the brain is activated, the word is value. There are pathways in the brain that have survival value. So when a stimulus comes in and the brain has 50,000 different ways of responding to it, some of those are useful for survival and some of those will either prevent survival or mar survival. And the human brain in classical evolutionary pattern will pick the one that is healthiest, Hmm. that gives greatest pleasure. Hmm. What gives greater pleasure than a spiritual sense? So I think of this as natural selection Mm -hmm. in, in a form, in an emotional form. And I think it is almost like choice because when you're talking about selection in the brain, there are processes of choice. The brain has a way of evaluating what is best for the organism. And what is best for the organism is not just survival and reproduction, but beauty, okay. but an aesthetic sense. So that we have, human beings have chosen to value beauty. You bet. We've chosen. Now, 
it's an unconscious process, but what we know about unconscious processes are that for every conscious process, there are eight million zillion trillion unconscious ones, and they are, in fact, what will eventually determine what's conscious and what we can understand. So, again, to reiterate, this is a process of natural selection. A stimulus comes in. There are many, many ways of responding to it. Some of those ways are counterproductive. Some are kind of ordinary, and some really give satisfaction and enhance the richness of our lives and without knowing it, our circuits are choosing those. And this is what I mean by the human spirit. Mm-hmm. And I want to just say, you know, say someone who's listening who hasn't read your work, what, what, what we're not talking about is the, I would say, the loving detail with which you describe these trillions of circuits and what is happening in that biological, those are the, how, how, how amazing that biological, those biological mechanisms are. It's how amazing wonderfully you find exciting. It Here are these 75 trillion cells, and every cell has hundreds of thousands of protein molecules in it, and they are constantly interacting with one another in what would appear to be chaos. And in fact, if you were to be able to lower yourself into a cell, you'd be terrified because it would seem so chaotic. If it had sound, you couldn't live with it. It would be so noisy. And yet what is actually occurring is that these reactions are all counteracting threats to the survival of that cell. And one of my arguments is that just as there is an unconscious mind, there is an awareness deeper than the unconscious. And I think that there is within the human organism, only the human organism because of our cortex and our ability to process information, I think that there is an awareness of the closeness of chaos. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that, including cultural evidence. And I talk often about the polarity of our thinking. We talk about good and evil, and one of my favorite examples of this is something I got from my Orthodox Jewish background, which is the principle of the good inclination living in balance with the evil inclination, and one must make that choice at all times. Uh, the Greeks who expressed it as chaos versus cosmos mm-hmm. already without knowing anything about cells or anything about how the body really worked. They had a sense that there was an order up there in the universe, and but we live in chaos. And we can use the example of the cosmos to seek the reassurance of that stability. And you know, and I know you listen to the popular music that people in their teens and 20s and 30s are listening to. And if you listen carefully, you're always going to hear the heartbeat in the background. Now, that's it's one of the most fascinating there. points you make. And what you're saying is that we are always seeking rhythm. Harmony, order, mm-hmm. integrity in the sense of oneness. And this is, again, why I think, and I've said this before, and you've heard me say this before, why monotheism is just, everybody says, oh, this is wonderful. The Jews discovered monotheism. The Christians embrace it. The Muslims embrace it as if this has to be the right thing. Why does it have to be the right thing? Why is this better than a bunch of polyglot gods or polymorphic gods? It's because we need unity, predictability. We need a moral sense, and that's what monotheism gives us. We need a moral sense to prevent the chaos that somehow we recognize 
we are living close to. Well, I'm also thinking of the beginning of Genesis, of the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, where the original creative act is creating order. That's right. That's That's right. And you know that the boys and the, not the girls, because girls probably didn't get a chance to get involved in this, but the boys who wrote those words, they were responding to precisely that same deep awareness that hadn't even reached the level of the unconscious mind yet that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It does occur to me that... um that this idea of the soul, the spirit—I don't know if you use the word soul. Do you use? Would you use the word soul and spirit I don't think I ever use the word soul. All right. Well, I, I'm thinking soul of, has implications that mm-hmm. I'm trying to stay that away. That you're from. staying away from. Yeah. I'm thinking there is in Jewish tradition this the nefesh, the soul, which is emergent, which you know, which is quite different from say a Christian idea of the mm-hmm. soul. It's something that's born in you, but there there is a Jewish sensibility of the soul as being something that emerges in relationship. And I mean, I do. I do think that there is some affinity between that image and and the way you imagine the human spirit to be this evolving work of humankind. <laughs> well, I I think you have just told me something I've got to think a lot about because <laughs> I had it had never occurred to me. But what I've got to do is think of the theological implications of nefesh because I suspect that I know far more than I think I know, just as we all know far more than mm-hmm. we think we know. You know, we know all these words, and if we were to sit down with ourselves in a quiet room or just sit with a pencil, extraordinary things would come out, mm-hmm. and they would be correct. So I've got to sit in the corner, and I've also got to talk to some better theologians than I about Mm -hmm. the implications of nefesh because I assume, why does this hit me so hard? Because I assume that I know things about that concept that I don't realize I know. Well, it may have been something you breathed in in that Orthodox Jewish air that you grew up in. Well, you do. It all (laughs) is related, you know, to, to the Greek notion of pneuma, the notion that the soul exists in the universe and with your first breath you inhale the pneuma and the p-n-e-u-m-a and that is the life-giving force mm-hmm. pneuma is actually etymologically related to psyche so you get psyche spirit soul all together in one but the origin of it is this thing that you inhale so all of these traditions end up going back, I think, to something that all Homo sapiens share. So if all Homo sapiens share it, one of two things has to be true. Either God gave it to everybody, or it's a universal within our on some level awareness or it's in our DNA or something of this. I choose, I, I choose to think it's biological. Mm-hmm. Our constitution somehow. Um, I, I still think it's very intriguing that you here at the beginning of the 21st century are exploring this and documenting it through, you know, the, the most current uh, insights we have into what happens at the cellular level, you know, in our bodies. You're, you're working with that at the cutting edge of science. I want to learn about the cutting edge of science, and nothing I find out makes me turn away from this thesis. In fact, the more I find out about neuroscience, the more I'm convinced of it. These last few days, not just hearing Dr. Hedelman... We've been at Chautauqua 
Uh, you're, you've been speaking here this week, and I'm interviewing you here this week. Yeah, that for my well, audience. Well, it's the week of the brain, mm-hmm. and we've been hearing, talking about cutting edge, uh, research being done at the Neurosciences Institute in La Jolla by Dr. Edelman, who's a Nobel Prize winner and the theorist of consciousness. And his notion of consciousness provides me with much more grist for my mill even than I had before. I think that, that, that the word consciousness and the concept in our time right now, just in these years, is um, opening up in such an extraordinary way. I mean, I'm just looking at your career, do you feel that? Well, we're finally coming to understand that phenomena that we think of as psychic phenomena can be explained by the nuts and bolts of physicochemistry and can be explained by the most complex structure that has ever existed on this planet, which is that three-pound human brain. Mm -hmm. You tell so many wonderful stories, and you you write... In all your writing, you, you, you have many stories from your medical practice. Um, I want to say, though, that one that struck, this isn't really, well, this is a story about you. You chose to, wrote about, to write about your grandmother, your bubba, mm-hmm. right, um, in How We Die. You wrote about her death. And, um, you know, so many of the stories you tell are about moments in surgery or in hospitals and individual lives in the mm-hmm. balance, and they're all so unique. It really struck me that you you wrote about your grandmother and you talked about how many letters you got from people all over the country, and you quoted this pig farmer in Iowa who exactly. wrote, Thank you so much for sharing your beloved Bubba with us. I now love her too, as I have known her by another name in another time in another place. Exactly struck me this paradox of uh, how different we all are in every one of our situations and living and dying, and yet, and yet how alike, yet how there are these images of humanity that... Do you know what I learned from writing that book if I learned nothing else? The more personal you are willing to be and the more intimate you are willing to be about the details of your own life, the more universal you are. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. And when I say universal, I don't mean universal only within our culture. You know, there's a lot of balderdash thrown around about, well, you don't understand uh, people who live in Sri Lanka and their response to the tsunami because you just don't know that culture. Well, there's an element of that. But to me, cultural differences are a kind of patina over the deepest psychosexual feelings that we have, that all human beings share, that they share by virtue of the physical properties of their body and the kind of brain that they have, which bring out certain sorts of strivings, certain sorts of emotional needs that are indeed universal. Mm-hmm. And how do we make use of that knowledge, or do we just do we just know it? I think we make use of that knowledge to perpetuate love, There is a book that I wrote called Lost in America, Mm -hmm. and there is a uh, quotation in that book. It's the epigraph of that book, and it's attributed to Philo. Uh, Nobody who's a Philo expert has been able to find it for me, and I certainly can't find it. Be kind, 
for everyone you meet is carrying great burden. Well, that's the Philosopher's Stone. Mm -hmm. When you recognize that pain and response to pain is a universal thing, it helps explain so many things about others, just as it explains so much about yourself. It teaches you forbearance. It teaches you a moderation in your responses to other people's behavior. It teaches you a sort of understanding. Mm -hmm. It essentially tells you what everybody needs. You know what everybody needs? You want to put it in a single word? Everybody needs to be understood. And out of that comes every form of love. That if someone truly feels that you understand them, an awful lot of neurotic behavior just disappears. Mm -hmm. Disappears on your part, disappears on their part. So if you're talking about what motivates this world to continue existing as a community, you've got to talk about love. And you can't talk about well, I'm going to get into hot water for this. You can't talk about this phony concept of love that so many of the religious throw around based on God's love. You've got to think about this in terms of human biology, including emotional biology. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it, love is such a watered-down, wishy-washy word. Well, sure. It's misused. Yeah. It's bastardized. Mm -hmm. And it becomes somebody's slogan. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm thinking when you talk about, if you, if you approach everyone, as you say, I, I love this epigraph, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. That's it, you fighting said, a great fighting battle. It's fighting a great battle. Yes, it's, that's I mean, better. <laughs> but you know what that also engenders, the qualities you spoke about, or patience, hospitality, compassion, virtues that are at the heart of all the great religious traditions, right? There's the universal again. Mm -hmm. And my argument is it comes out of your biology, hmm. because on some level we understand all of this. We, we put it into religious forms, it's almost like an excuse to deny our biology. We put it into pithy, sententious aphorisms, but it's really coming out of our deepest physiological nature. I also, though, as I read you, you you're very clear that that some people could read um, the way you describe reality and even your sense of spirit as something that has evolved, and could also find could also be religious and hold that together with a, a sense that there's a God. Of course. Mm -hmm. And I've said so many times that these are two different belief systems, that there isn't a reason in the world that the religious have to explain their faith on a scientific basis. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. What is needed between science and religions is not a debate, but a conversation. Each one saying, you know, you're here to stay, and I'm here to stay, so let's find out how our relationship can be of greatest benefit to this world. Mm -hmm. And in several places, I pointed out something that's very obvious, and in a new book that's coming out in October on Maimonides, the great Oh, that's Jewish, coming out in October In October, already. Okay. yeah. Uh, pointed out that this debate between the two did not exist until the philosophers of the Enlightenment well, created that debate. Well, let's say who debate. Maimonides was a physician and yes. a philosopher. And a theologian. And a theologian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Aquinas was a philosopher and a theologian. Mm-hmm. Averroes was a physician, a philosopher, and a theologian. Both, all three of these people knew essentially all the knowledge available to anybody at that time. And they were engaged in the pursuit of bringing science and philosophy on the one hand, specifically Greek philosophy, science and philosophy on the one hand, together with faith on the other hand. That's what they did. When people talk about Galileo, they say, oh my God, Galileo, he was a heretic, he was fighting. Not at all. That's not true, I know. Galileo's entire pursuit was to bring his theory into keeping with church doctrine. Mm Mm-hmm. I think I'm gonna. I'm. I know I'm tiring you. I'm gonna let you go. But I, can we keep going for a few more minutes? This is, this is a long. Um, I was thinking when I was reading you about the um, evolution of spirit, of sort of humanity as a creation of humankind and a creation of the brain. Um, I was thinking of John Polkinghorne, who's a British physicist and theologian. And he says that he, he believes in God, but he says God did something much more clever than create a clockwork world. God created uh, a world that could make itself. There it is. So, I mean, it's, it's a way to, to look at yeah. everything you're stating and also retain a faith. But I'm not yeah. saying that's I'm not saying there's any reason to force that. And either. you know what else he did? Let's say c- categorically we're both people of faith. He gave humankind free will. And free will will becomes the essence of the whole thing. Because it's not just free will in the conscious sense, but he would have created the free will that makes the synapses and the nerve cells and the neurotransmitters, allows them to make choices. And given the opportunity to make choices, they will always choose the more, let's use that big word, salubrious way and salubrious in the classical sense of healthy way, mm-hmm. physically healthy, emotionally healthy, the thing that's going to make it survive most likely and provide it with the most pleasure. And the moral sense provides people with more pleasure than anything. That's been my experience, that a sense of oneself as a good person whose life isn't sacrificed for others, but is based around community and love, gives one a sense of self that is the greatest pleasure that anybody can have. We say virtue is its own reward. And, you know, it's a little homily, but there's a lot of stuff behind that homily. Mm. Every cliche has a reason. Oh, okay. So, which was, I, you know, I think. Let me let me just ask you this as a as a as a final question. Um, this adventure of learning about the brain, which you are steeped in, um, and here we are at Chautauqua, and people are hearing lectures about it every day. But I wonder how you think this kind of knowledge um, will begin to reach ordinary people. You know, are there ways it will turn up in our culture? Uh, at a at a more basic level, what happens to science, or what has happened to science since the great discoveries began to be made around the middle of the twentieth century, is that increasingly the public 
by reading about some of these technological events and phenomena over and over again, it starts seeping in. People are very impatient when they want to learn about this stuff. They well, I don't understand this, and they go on to something else. But if you're just patient and let it happen, <coughs> I'm sorry. If you're just patient and let it happen, bit by bit, people began to understand DNA. In 1955, just two years after Watson and Crick did their nice thing and published that great paper, nobody could figure out what DNA right. was. Now, now everybody a, knows yeah. what okay. DNA is. And and all kinds of notions of heredity and genetics. When people first started talking about stem cells and cloning, they were a mystery except in, in some sort of comedic sense. But bit by bit, people are recognizing scientific observations and discoveries. And my guess is that neuroscience, as it evolves, will slowly become something that is apprehensible to most reasonably well-educated people. Of course, it would help if we had a, had a better way of scientifically educating 10-year-olds, but right. we are not in that situation in this country. But, you know, what the, the neuroscience that you're describing is also something that I think people could use I mean, to make their lives more fulfilling. That, that kind of knowledge is also a form of power. Well, I like to think that if people really understand the way their brains work, they would be as overwhelmed with wonder as some of us are and would have a completely different sense of the human organism and its potentialities and would try to live up to its greatest potentialities. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's your last word. Thank okay, you Mom, so I mean, it's over. Just... <laughs> it's over. You are, you, you may go. <laughs> well, you see, this was wonderful. And the fact that you're not religious is irrelevant. Can what? I just ask a quick question? Yes. I'm not, you can tell me if this is um, worth asking, but I'll refer to you in a third okay. person. Uh, wisdom of the body, mm -hmm. propensity mm -hmm. to achieve homeostasis, and the positive effects of that we talked about on Monday. What about the negative? Oh, yeah, and, right. And in the emotional form of natural, natural selection, as mm -hmm. far as putting that jacket on again that, of the neuroses. And maybe we've already asked that. Can I ask you that? Just one more question while he's taking pictures. Okay. Okay. Um, I did want to say this, that, that, that the spirit, for all of its, its wonder and, and the good that we associate with it, also has base qualities and has a dark side. I mean, how do you, how do you think about that in this scheme? That, um, well, I think it has to do with the polarity that is within us and the nearness of chaos, which is always a temptation. It's like the, fly, the, uh, it's like the butterfly and the flame. We are tempting ourselves with evil. We are tempting ourselves with that which is destructive, and we, to some extent, succumb to it. If you talk to psychoanalysts about severe neurotic disease, they often talk about the personality that skates to the edge and then rescues itself from the edge. Mm. We are so tempted to go to hell with ourselves, as it were, that's a theological expression, that we actually do come near it, even recognizing the other pole. And this is what the Greeks meant when they were talking about eros versus tenetos, mm -hmm. the love and mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. sense against the, the death sense. Freud went too far with the notion of a death instinct, but in a sense, you know, you know, we're, we're worried about that, and so we skate toward it, but pull back 
when we can, we realize it just might happen. Mm -hmm. So this is all part of that polarity that I was talking about, mm -hmm. the fear of chaos, which mm -hmm. makes us look for order. So given that dynamic, that's also a possibility within that dynamic, that, that, that chaos is chosen or veered towards. Is veered towards, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's in very many of us to deliberately choose destruction, but we are tempted by it as we are tempted by the devil, and we play with it, and it licks us and burns us and can ruin lives. Okay. All right. Thank you. And this is just um, not for the interview, but uh, any music or poetry that oh, um, Well, you have a lot. There's a lot of po there are a lot of poetry. Okay. We do um, weave the interviews together with readings, and I mm -hmm. might have some readings from your book in the show. Oh, okay. Is there any... I, we can... Sometimes I'll ask people if there's music that's especially meaningful for them in the context of something we spoke about, and we might use that uh, in the program. Did you hear that boy, Albin, what's his name, play that oh, Dvorak cello concerto? Oh, the other night? I didn't, but I heard You want to talk about the human spirit. It was breathtaking. And watching him, not to... He was carried away by the human spirit. Mm. There's a photograph of him in today's Chautauqua newspaper that somehow caught that instant. You know, most photographs... It's on the inside, isn't it? That one on the inside? I don't know. I was sitting somewhere, and yeah. someone was reading right. it, and I looked over his yeah. shoulder and saw that oh, photograph. He's just swept up in it. Ab absolutely. He's carried away by something that is wondrous, mm -hmm. and he doesn't know what it is, he, he was living in Wensley with me, and we, we talked oh, about right. it later. He doesn't know what it is, and we never know what it is. Mm -hmm. but, it, but it had caught him and swept him up, and we were the beneficiaries mm. of that. Okay, that's great. great. Yeah. Yeah. She keeps saying okay, so you know well, that means get out of here. <laughs> no, I appreciate you giving your time. And, uh, and I think you must be...